Abuse may always be a part of your life, but it doesn't have to define it. Hey everybody, welcome to Crime Over Cocktails. I'm Tiffany, your host, and today I'm with my guest, Sandy. Hello. Hi. Good to be here. I'm a um, victim of clergy sexual abuse. I was sexually abused by my youth pastor when I was 16. And that's sort of what started my life as an abuse victim for five years because the abuse went on for five years and then I became a survivor. Thank God, right? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. It was a long road. It wasn't easy. I spent 27 years keeping the secret. So I didn't, my husband didn't know, my family, my friends didn't know. Because he was discovered at the time, there were people in the church who were aware of it at the time, but not everyone knew. But as my life went on uh, for 27 years, I did hide that secret from anyone who knew me, which wasn't easy, nor was it healthy. Right. That's a really heavy burden to keep to yourself. It was. It it was. And there were a lot of triggers throughout the years um, that I had to also hide. I had to hide my anxiety when I was in church. It was very difficult. And I, I didn't realize at the time what how it was affecting me. And it wasn't until I was able to speak my truth and feel free enough and comfortable enough to speak out. Uh, because for 27 years, I was afraid, uh, afraid of what people would think of me if they knew I was afraid of the consequences, um, and I was afraid that people would not like me. Um, this, the abuse started when I was 16, so you know I was kind of in between that point of being a child and an adult, and so it because it lasted for five years. I was 21 when it ended. In my mind, I always saw that I had had an affair with a married man who was a pastor, and so for me, I never saw it as abuse, but as something that I participated in, and something that was my fault because I should have stopped it. Um, And I didn't know how to say no to him. I was also very active in the church at the time. And so when his actions were discovered, instead of putting the blame on him, I was blamed. I was um, told that I was to leave the church. He was given a going away party. He was given gifts and they moved him to the next church. Um, I'm kind of getting a little ahead of myself. Um, It's very important to understand how involved I was in the church. It was just a place that I absolutely loved. I was very active. I sang in the choir. I taught Sunday school. I was baptized when I was 13. It was a place that brought me such joy and peace, and I loved every minute of it. I I tell people, you know, if the doors of the church were open, I was there. I, I couldn't do enough for the church. So, when they hired this new youth pastor, I was just as eager to be involved in his ministry as I had in the previous pastor. He was a lot different than any pastor we'd ever seen before, though. He was very dynamic, very charismatic. He was 30 years old and married with two children, but he really acted more like the youth. He drove a convertible. He had sideburns. He wore cut off jeans. So he was really different than anyone we'd seen before. And To say that he was treated like a rock star would be an understatement. Everyone loved this man. His sermons were phenomenal. People flocked to our church to hear him. I'd say if there had been a mega church at that time, he would have been in charge of one because he was just that charismatic and that dynamic. People just thought he walked on water. So when he arrived at our church, um, it was no surprise that he tapped into me to be one of the leaders, you know, and, and so he really took me under his wing. My parents were divorced. Uh, they weren't involved in the church. And during my teenage years, I didn't see my dad very much. And that was uh, a real hurt in my life at that time. And I was very vulnerable and I needed some security in the church. And this pastor provided that. I looked to him as a father figure. So for me, um, his ability to take advantage of me was pretty easy pretty easy. And and it really occurred kind of um, in an innocent way, really. I was in charge of a youth group meeting at my house and he waited for everyone to leave. He walked up to me. He started caressing my face. He said to me how wonderful I was, how much he appreciated what I was doing in the church. I mean, he was, I was on cloud nine. I felt so special. And then he just bent down and he kissed me. Uh, It was a quick kiss, um, kind of innocent. 
I was taken aback. I didn't know what to say. I didn't know what to do. And I kind of remember thinking, I think he just kissed me, but you know, he's my pastor. He wouldn't be doing this if he shouldn't be. And then I justified it. And the only way that I knew how was to simply say this was just his way of showing how much he appreciated me and what I was doing. And, you know, as a 16 year old girl, I didn't know what else to do with it. And and in reality, I, I did feel special with him. He did treat me differently than everyone else. And I liked that. I mean, I did like the attention. Um, I did babysit for the family. His wife worked evenings. So this gave him the perfect opportunity to be alone with me. And it would be over a year that the grooming process would take place. And slowly, the kissing became more passionate. Um, the hugging became, you know, lingering hugs. He didn't always, like when I would leave, sometimes he would hug me, sometimes he wouldn't. So he kind of kept me in an imbalance that I couldn't just pinpoint that, okay, this is something that shouldn't be happening. Until finally, uh, one night he laid me on the floor and started undressing me and had sex with me. And at that point, I knew it was wrong. I I couldn't justify it, but I didn't know what to do with it. I I had no idea what to do with this. I was absolutely uh, stunned that this was happening to me. And of course, he then turned it around to say, this is a special relationship. You can't tell anyone. Uh, No one's going to believe you. And again, I didn't know what to do with it because I cared for this person and I I trusted him. And I still liked the attention, but I, I couldn't rationalize what he was doing. And it then became where he became very emotionally damaging to me in the sense that he was physically violent toward me. Mm-hmm. He changed from this Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde kind of thing. This person that I thought cared about me all of a sudden was very controlling. Uh, he told me where I could go, who I could see, who I could date, what the way I dressed. If he didn't like something that I wore to church that day, he would tell me to go home and change it. And I felt under his thumb. I felt under his control. And in some ways, I was trying to make it work. I know as bizarre as that sounds, because he was telling me, you know, this is in God's eyes, we're married. This is God's will. And I'm confused and And I thought, well, who am I going to tell? Who's going to believe me? I mean, I didn't even believe this was happening to me. And he convinced me that he loved me and that, you know, someday we'd be married. And, you know, for me, that was, well, that's what's supposed to happen. Uh, And so I accepted the relationship. There were a couple of times I tried to get out of it once. And he would respond in one of two ways. He would either say to me, I love you. I need you. Please don't leave me. So they played the guilt trip. Or, and this was most often the case, he would become kind of violent. He pushed me up against the wall and he would say to me, no one else can love you like I can. You're not worthy of being loved by anyone else. And then he would throw at me that I was no longer a virgin and no one else would want me. And I came to believe that. I My self-esteem plummeted. I finally believed the lies that he would tell me. Um, I wasn't pretty enough. I wasn't smart enough. I wasn't thin enough. He just beat me down. And to a point that I knew this would be my life forever. I'd never get married. I'd never have children. And I knew at some point he was never going to leave his wife. And so for me, the only way I could survive and the only way I could make myself feel like this was normal was to accept it. And that's what I eventually did. And the only reason it ended is that two people in the church became suspicious of his behavior around me and followed him one night and found us. And that's when uh, he was called into the elders. I don't know what narrative he gave. I don't know what he told them. I was never asked any questions. I was never given any counseling. I was simply called in to by two elders in the church. And I was told that because of my behavior, I was to leave the church. And I will tell you, even as I say those words today, I was devastated. I loved that church. It was the only church I knew. And I thought that they loved me. And for them to look at me and say, I wasn't fit to worship there was devastating. And I've said many times, and I've heard it from other victims when there's clergy abuse involved, the reaction of the church had a more devastating effect on my life going forward than the actual abuse did. Um it always made me feel that I was unworthy, that I was unlovable, 
I mean, when the church can kick you out and say you're not worthy of being loved by this church, what does that say to, to a person? And and for being me, re-victimized. it is. It's absolutely being re-victimized. And sadly, it happens. It continues to happen. Victims are looked at as the problem. They're looked at as, well, what did you do to encourage this? Even children, when they're young, are, people will say, well, that child has some mental issues and, 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 you know, or she's very sexual for a 12 year old. I mean, they will look for ways to make excuses for the priest, the pastor, or the rabbi. Right. Cause he's got them all wrapped around his finger. And, and when I say grooming happens with the victim, it also, they, these predators groom those around them, like you just said, because they need the people around them to to be sucked in as well. So when they are accused of something or something is proven, they have their tribe and their community around them to support them. And in some ways, I can understand that because this is a man that they see as a godly man. He's the man that baptized their children. He's the man that married them. He's the man that has counseled them. So for them, they only want to see this good person. So it's easier to to find fault with someone else than the the person that they look up to and the person that they adore. Right. They don't want to believe it. It's easier to look the other way. And if you look the other way or you look for excuses, then you don't have to do anything. You don't, you're not forced into having to deal with this individual and churches oftentimes fail in that. And I think part of the other reason they fail is that they misuse scripture. So they begin to have sympathy for this man because now we're told, according to the Bible, well, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we 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 shouldn't judge. We're not to judge. Um, and my answer to that is, look, I am not judging my abuser, whether he is going to heaven or hell. What I am judging is his ability to do his job. And he proved by his own actions, he does not have what it takes and what he should be doing to keep that position. And, and as long as he's in a position of trust and power, and he's proven that he can't be trusted with that position, he needs to be removed. And that's not the norm for most churches. They want to look for ways to maybe get him help and so that he can come back to the church. Or, you know, they say, well, it was a mistake and he's asked for forgiveness. Interestingly enough, when my pastor abuser was hired at my church, right after he was hired, a young woman from his first church came forward and accused him of inappropriate behavior. He didn't deny it. He said it was true, but that it was a mistake. He was sorry, and it would never happen again. And my elders and my senior minister at the time believed him, and they said they would forgive him. And within six months of that accusation, which he didn't deny, he was kissing me in my hallway in my home. And that accusation was never made public to the congregation. My mother never knew about it. No one knew that he had been accused of inappropriate behavior prior coming to our church. And then when it happens again with me, which is at least the second time, when people say, well, that was the second time. Well, it could have been the third or the fourth. It's only the second time that anybody was made aware of. Right. The first, it's not right. right. I mean, it shouldn't stop with the first. Exactly. But when it didn't stop with the first and then it happens again, you would think, okay, he's had two chances and he's blown both of them. No, 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 no. He moves. Guess what he does at the next church? I'm going to guess he finds himself another girl. (laughs) Yes. Good guess. guess. (laughs) Now, um, I will say that part of my healing and it took a while. Um, for me to get to that point. But part of my healing um, required that I confront him, which mm-hmm. I hired a private investigator. Now, this is 27 years later. So I um, had no idea whether he's alive. Is he still know a pastor? Yes. Oh, yes. oh. <laughs> I that's the part of my story that everybody like drops their jaw and it's they're speechless. Um, and it, it it is a true story. Not only is he was he continued in, in, to be a pastor, but when I confronted him, I fired, uh, hired a private investor, investigator. He found him. When I confronted him, he gave all kinds of excuses. He had an alcoholic father. He had all kinds of issues. And one of the issues that he had was that during counseling, he had been identified as a sexual addict. Now, his supervisor is sitting in this room when I confronted him. My husband was with me and I had two good friends that were with me. 
when he said that, I, I was stunned because I thought, how do you keep a man who, who has had a history that he admits to and then says he's a sexual addict and he continues to be your pastor? In addition to no one in his church knew about his past, not the elders. Only this supervisor could say to me, well, I knew he had some problems in his past, but they were taken care of. That's all he knew. That's all he knew until I showed up. I tell him my story. And do you know what he says to me? Well, this happened 27 years ago, and it has no validity to the person he is today. So basically, move along, go home. That is so sad. You know, church and scary. is supposed to be a loving place where people are supposed to be surrounded by people who want to help lift you up. But this church seems like all they wanted to do was put you down. And hide, hide, hide this man's past. And again, because he's so charismatic and he brings in people and he brings in the money, that's why they want to protect him. Because he is so dynamic that he has, again, he has manipulated and groomed those around him as well. And they can't see for who he really is. Um, Now, I will tell you that when I was told this doesn't have any validity and I said to him, well, I'm going to write your 11 elders because I, I cannot in good conscience believe that I'm going to leave this room and let this church go on without them having knowledge of your past and what they decide to do with it. That's their business, but they need to know my story. So I wrote to 11 elders of that church. Okay. You get to guess again, how many responded? One, zero. Oh, I was hoping for at least one, (laughs) not one. I, again, ignore her, go away. Now in my book, um, I also included the letters that was that were written to me by the supervisor and they will again you will have a jaw dropping response when you read these letters he accuses me of trying to destroy this church he accuses me that and says to me that i will if i were to expose this man to the elders then i will carry a guilt that i won't be able to um undo and that the guilt and shame that i carry will destroy this church if I were to expose him, which I end up doing. I wrote to the 11 elders, which did no good because they didn't respond. So then I decided to go to the president of this denomination. Now, while I'm telling you all this, none of it was easy. I I will say I was a nervous wreck. I was scared. I was, and part of my fear was his words of don't ever tell you won't be believed in his words that you'll get in trouble if you tell never really left me. And so when I thought about doing these things, I had to think long and hard. And at one point, I almost backed out and said, I can't do this. I'm just too afraid. So I don't want to make it. I mean, this has been almost 18 years ago. So I've had a long time to get where I am today. But during that time, it was very, very, very hard for me. And one of the things that for me, in confronting him, my fear of walking into that room was that he would be able to control and manipulate me again, and that I would be 16 all over again, and I would be afraid that I would believe his lies, and that I would back down and feel sorry for him. And that's what I was most afraid of. Um, You've come too far to do that. And, and that was true. And I had the support of my husband and two friends who were there. Um, and that was huge for me. And the other thing that made it easier for me to confront him was he couldn't deny it. You know, so many victims, their, their abusers going to say, well, I think she was confused or, well, that was 27 years ago. I don't know what she's talking about. He couldn't do that because he'd been caught. So that also made it easier for me to confront him because I knew he couldn't look at me and say, well, she's crazy. I don't know what she's talking about. He had to sit there and admit that what I was te- what I was saying was true. So I did go after that. I went to his denominational president and talked to him. Um, I was granted a meeting, but I was again told that this had happened so long ago, and that the churches that they are in, under that denomination um, hire and fire their own pastors, and so they really had no and they couldn't do anything. They had no power to remove this man. 
Now, if you want a funny note, if something to, to a little lighthearted, I had chosen October 24th as my day that I was going to confront him. And I that was a date. I said, he has to meet me then or not at all. I mean, he's going to meet me on the 24th. His supervisor told my investigator, I, I can't, I'm busy that day. Can we do it a different day? And I'm like, no, I'm in control here. It's going to be the 24th. Well, little did I know that October 24th was Minister Appreciation Day. <laughs> I was going to expose and abuse this abuser on Minister Appreciation Day. I did not know that when I picked the date, but I thought, well, that's God's way of a little bit of humor here. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah. So that was, um, so, you know, as I said, this has been a quite a journey for me and it wasn't an easy one. I probably spent a good two years in a very dark place after I had finally come out with the fact that I knew that I had been abused. Because I said, as up to this point, I felt like I was the one who had an affair with a married man. I'd spent 27 years hiding this from my friends and my family. I had to work on these anxieties that I would have during triggers. But it was over time and my ability to speak and tell my story that really freed me. The first time I uttered the words I was sexually abused by my youth pastor, uh, I sobbed and sobbed and sobbed, and I couldn't get the words out. But I eventually understood that that's what was done to me. This wasn't something that I controlled. It wasn't something that I could have helped. And I tell victims, look, you know, it's easy to look back and say, why didn't I do this? Why didn't I say this? Why couldn't I have said no? You did the best you could with the coping skills you had at the time. You did the best you could with the knowledge that you had at the time. And not only that, you were targeted and trapped by someone you should have been able to trust. And that goes for any kind of abuse. You know, if it's a family member, it's always something, always 99% of the time, it's not a stranger. It is someone that you look up to, someone that you automatically trust. So you don't question their behavior and they're good at it. They're good at what they do. So the first thing I always tell victims is that you've got to let go of blaming yourself. Do not blame yourself in any way. It was not your fault. And for me, that was one of the hardest things as a hurdle to get over for my healing. I had to understand that I was targeted and I was used by someone I should have been able to trust in the safest place on earth, the church. Right. You were just a child. What do you, you're not supposed to make those decisions. Correct. Right? And, 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 and these predators prey on any, any vulnerable individual. So yes, a child automatically by their ages is, is, is vulnerable, but you know, as I, at 16, I was vulnerable in the sense that I looked at him as a father figure. I, I had a void in my life and that's part of the grooming. These predators look for vulnerable people. They find out what their vulnerabilities are and then they pretend to fill that void. They pretend to care about them. They pretend to help them. And, and all the time, all that, that is, is just a setup to get them to a point of, of abusing them. That's all that is. It, it looks like it's a kind person when it's not. And so, you know, they praise the potential victim with gifts and flatteries, and they make a victim who already has low self-esteem feel validated and important. So, you know, it's a grooming's a predatory act. It's to get the victim to a place that makes them more likely to trust, become more emotionally dependent, and more accepting of inappropriate behavior. So, you know, his kiss, if that had been my neighbor down the street, I, I mean, I would have like, oh my gosh, what is this creepy guy doing? Right. But I trusted this guy and he he did it in such an innocent way that even if I had questioned him or said I would go to the elders, he could have easily explained it. Oh, my gosh, I didn't mean to. I meant to you know, give her a quick kiss on the on the forehead. It was very innocent. I didn't mean it. And it could be explained away. And then it's slowly that just gets you know more involved, more involved to the point to where test the waters, test the waters. Very good way to explain that. Exactly. Yes. I'm so sorry that that happened to you. And I just cannot believe that you held that for 27 years thinking that you were in the wrongdoing. Yeah. You were a child. You didn't have your dad around. You felt special. And he took advantage of that. And that's, and, 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 and I appreciate that. And I, you know, it, it's, it, it just that keeping that secret for 27 years really impacted my life in very many negative ways. What I say to people is keeping that secret actually continued the abuse because 
I was constantly on guard, worried that someone would find out about my past. And therefore, he was still a part of my life because he was daily in my life having to worry about who was going to find out. Or if I said, you know, there were a couple of times when I would say something about church and how involved I was. And as my adult life, I wasn't involved in church. And so people, I remember a couple of times people say, well, why were you so involved as a kid and you're not now? And I would panic because I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to explain that, you know, church now is difficult for me because of what was done to me in the church. So there were times when I had to be vigilant and be careful of what I said. And and then I would run into people that were at the church at the time. And that would always set me into a panic because uh, th- that was such a huge reminder. And I worried, okay, are they going to say anything? Which is irrational because they're not probably going to. But when you've been abused, your brain through trauma doesn't think rationally. Trauma changes how a person thinks. We end up believing the lies that our abusers tell us. We incorporate those lies into our lives and we believe them. And I, you know, I I never felt worthy of being loved, even though I found a man that loved me. And even though I had a wonderful marriage, I always felt like I didn't deserve what I got. I didn't deserve that. And I always worried he'd find out. And I didn't have to have that worry because I knew in my heart of hearts, he would be supportive. But those words, don't ever tell, don't ever tell, were just so, they were right there in the forefront of my brain all all the time. I can see that. It's just, you kept yourself in your own prison. I did. I did. And you know, what I discovered was I had to let go of that because again, by by living in the past like that and, and not coming forward, I was simply allowing him to continually to re-abuse me. And it was a terrible way to live. It was terrible. And the only, I mean, I was going to my grave with this. And and I tell people, they'll say, well, why do victims wait so long to tell? You know, I waited 27 years. It's a legitimate question. Why didn't you tell someone then? Well, here's the answer to that. First of all, I'm embarrassed. I don't want to have to tell this to anyone at the time. I didn't think anyone would believe me. And I was afraid of what would happen if I told anyone. I I mean, it was all irrational because I had him over me telling me, you're going to get in trouble if you tell and you'll get me in trouble. So at the time, I didn't feel like I could say anything to anyone. Once it was over, I was so glad that it was over. I wanted it to be done. I didn't want to talk about it. I didn't want to have to relive it. And so in my mind, as in many victims' minds, we're just going to forget it and we're going to move on. Well, that doesn't work. You know, it doesn't work. Yeah, good (laughs) luck with that. It doesn't work. And so we don't, it's not like we're waiting to tell. It's not like, okay, when my children are older, I'll tell. Or maybe when I'm at this point in my life and I feel better about myself, I'll tell. Or after I go to counseling, maybe I'll tell. No, we at least for me, we are going to our graves with this secret. We are not going to tell anyone. Do you know what the average age is for a victim of child abuse to come forward? Yes. Just, you know, um, 35, 52. Holy shit. (laughs) And I I was 49. So I'm below average, but um, I was 49 when I came forward. So it's not like we're waiting to tell anyone. We really think that we're going to to keep the secret forever. Now, for me, uh, it was a trigger that I couldn't suppress that finally set me on to the journey of saying, I have to deal with my past. So I told my best friend first. Um, I had it in my first chapter of my book. That's where I described this trigger that happened that forced me to say, okay, something happened to you that you need to deal with. and what was done to you was wrong. And this wasn't a love affair that he pretended it was. This was abuse. And that's what sent me on my journey of healing. The first part of my journey of healing really required that I had to understand that I was abused because I didn't want to believe that that's what had been done to me. I wanted to believe that on some level he cared about me. I wanted to believe that the things he told me, that he loved me and that he cared for me and that I was special. I wanted to believe those things. Cool. And, if, and if I didn't believe them, then that meant I had been abused by him. And so I had to, number one, recognize that I was abused. And then number two, as I said earlier, I had to quit playing that game of, well, maybe I encouraged him or maybe I should have done this. It took me a long time 
to get rid of that self-blame. Any guilt and shame I felt really was squarely on him. It belonged all to him. And I, I should not have had that burden to carry. So that was the second thing I had to do. The third thing I did, and this was what really opened my eyes, I read everything I could on abuse, whether it was clergy abuse. I read on things on narcissistic personalities, everything I could that could open my eyes so that I could see this is what grooming looks like. This is what gaslighting looks like. This is what love bombing looks like. This is what a Stockholm syndrome is, where the victim starts to identify with their abuser and wants to care about their abusers. All of those things opened my eyes to the point that I could then understand what was done to me. And that was huge in my ability to move forward. It was huge. And then the last thing that I had to do was to tell someone, finally tell someone. How did your husband take it? Well, he he was wonderful. I, I mean, I I sat down with him and I started sobbing and I sobbed for almost probably 20 minutes before I could get anything out. And I finally kind of said to him, it's not me. I'm okay. And the kids are okay. That's all I could get out for a while. And what I remember most about telling him was that when I said to him, I have something to tell you, I was sexually abused by my youth pastor. He looked at me. And then when I said I was their babysitter, his face just dropped. It was like the light bulb. He saw the scenario of what was happening to me. And his main concern was, you know, how this affected me. He was concerned about me confronting the abuser. I think he was worried about, you know, that I would, my expectations would be too high. And they were to some extent. So he was just as kind and loving as he could have been. Right. And I'm lucky. I'm very fortunate and blessed that I had him as that kind of support. Um, because, you know, I worried, I mean, my worry about telling him was, you know, would he be upset that I kept this secret from me for 27 years? You know, would he say to me, why couldn't you have trusted me? I, I worried whether he'd see me different sexually. Those were fears that I had in telling him because I also knew once I told him I couldn't take it back. And I, I, I can remember vividly. You know, when people in the church found out, guess who they blamed? You know, when the elders knew about the the abuse, they didn't call it abuse, but when they learned of the relationship, I was kicked out of the church. So that fear was still within me that I understood, you know, people may not respond the way you want them to. And once they know, you have to take the consequences. And so that was my fears. Um, But again, he couldn't have been any more loving and kind than he was. Very good. Yeah. Shame on those people. They're trash. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and you know, again, I go back to it's as difficult as it it is. They too have to wrap their minds around this man that they care about and that they love and that he has manipulated and groomed as well. So I don't excuse their behavior, but I do think it's understandable. But churches need to do better. And the leadership needs to be aware and understand clergy abuse to the point so that they can say to these people, wait a minute, we're not blaming the victim here at all. He had a responsibility as the person in charge, as the one with the power, as the one with the trust to maintain the proper boundaries. No matter what happens, it's his job to maintain those boundaries. And when he doesn't, he's removed. There is no excuses. There's, It's removal. End of discussion. And like blackballed something, so yeah, no one right. hires him because clearly there's a risk here. Some Absolutely. of these people, and from what you said, I kind of believe he's one of them that went into this profession for this reason. Yes, yes, and that's you know that's a very common, you're, a good point you're making there. These predators will look for places that have vulnerable people. They become coaches. They become you know look at the the doctor with the gymnast in. Um, the Olympic gymnasts, they look p- for places that they can find people who are vulnerable and who th- who they know will depend upon them for something. So whether you're depending on your pastor for counseling, you need to depend on him for your spiritual life, the doctors, they look for places where there are vulnerable people to be abused. And where else can you find more vulnerable people and, and people in need than in a church? I mean, that's people come to a church because they're looking for spiritualness. They're looking for help. They're looking to, to make their lives better. And here is a man that yeah, acceptance. And here's a man that stands before them and says, I'm going to be that person for you. 
You know, I I try to tell people how traumatized I was when you think about the fact that this man would have sex with me on Saturday night and preach a sermon on marriage and son, on Sunday morning. And this went on for five years, for Did five years. Leave him or? Um, you know, I tell people, Think about it. She was also emotionally abused by this man as well. They ha- they did not have a good marriage. She had three small children. Um, he had beaten her down as well. And I sang in the choir with her. Um, I knew her very well. She was part of the youth group at, at some point. And I can remember feeling sorry for her. I babysat for him. So I saw I saw him throw a book at her one time and hit her in the back of the head. I have, I watched some of the things. So she was also, now having said that, once they moved them to the next church. And keep in mind, she's trying to save her marriage. She's, you know, what is she going to do if, if he can't get another job? So when they moved to the next church and it happened again, she then left him. Good and point. yes, and that, and that took courage on her part to do that. Part of my story is um, once I confronted him, and I would say it was about a year after that, I felt guilty and not guilty, but I felt sorry for her and that what she had gone through. Not that any of it was my fault, but I still empathize with her that that, that time in her life had to have been horrific. I mean, she was her husband was being exposed. She didn't know what was going to happen next. And so I decided um, that I would find her and just simply say to her, I'm sorry for this time that you had to go through this. And I didn't know how she'd react. I didn't know if she would scream at me. I, but I wanted to give her that opportunity to say, you know, I, I blame you or I don't blame you or I'm sorry, but whatever. And so I called her and you're like, I'm I, not sending no more letters. No, no, no. no. I, I called her and, you know, she couldn't have been any more loving and caring than she was. She said I was not to blame. Um, it was a horrible time for her, but she didn't blame me in any way. And she then said to me, you know, of all the times that this happened in, with our marriage, and there were more than, than the three that we knew about, she said, no one ever thought about me. And you're the first person who's who recognized that I, too, was suffering during that time. And the interesting thing was, uh, at that time, my daughter lived in Charlotte, and she lived about 20 minutes from my daughter. So we went, I went down to see my daughter. I would make sure that I made a visit with her and we've been in contact ever since. Um, met her husband and uh, gone to dinner with them. And it's, it's been great. She's got a, 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 a great husband now. And, and I tell people that, you know, my husband thought that was a little weird. I'll have to say he was like, you're doing what and how, you know, you're friends with who, but what that demonstrated, my first of all, my ability and willingness to call her, and then her response demonstrates what true Christianity and forgiveness looks like. She didn't have to be kind to me. And I had, there was nothing that I needed to be, be forgiven for, but she took a burden off of me that I knew that she didn't blame me. And that, that, that was a, a gift that she gave me. And I gave her a gift by, by willing to reach out to her and acknowledge her pain during that time. Absolutely. And I think you guys probably helped each other heal because it's like almost patching some of the unforeseen things that you kept rolling in your head. And you're like, oh my God, I can let that go now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, that was that's that's another good part of the story. There's a lot of good parts of my story in my book. I tell people, you know, the first part is about abuse and it, it's it's a difficult read at times because I didn't um, I didn't really you know uh, sugarcoat it and that was part of it was one of the reasons it was difficult to write the book because there's a lot of things in there that I'm I you know you think okay you're letting the world know this and um, but the second part of the book is about you know education and helping people understand the dynamics of clergy abuse and what it does to a person's spiritual life and how these predators operate and how they work. Because if we don't understand how they work, we're going to miss the signs. We're going to miss it when we look and see that, okay, this doesn't seem right because I know what grooming looks like and that's what he's doing. So it's important. Um, and that's why I wrote this in the second half of the book. It's, it's more about, you know, my hope for victims and my healing process, because I really want victims to feel like they have hope and healing. Um, that that's possible. 
Uh, one of the things I've, I've talked about many times is I wonder what would have happened to me and how I would have responded had I heard someone's story when I was being abused. You know, would it have given me the courage to come forward? Would it have given me the courage to say, this isn't right and what he's doing and, and I, I shouldn't be believing everything he's telling me because I've just heard her story and it's very similar to mine. Our stories are important. Your story is important. Everyone's story is important, whether it's a big story or a small story. We we gain strength, we gain hope, and we gain knowledge from each other's stories. And so I felt it was important to tell my story. And that was you know the reason I wrote the book. It wasn't out of hatred. It wasn't to be vindictive. It was to tell my truth. And your book's called Let Me Pray Upon You? Yes. And it's P-R-E-Y. P-R-A-Y is is scratched out and P-R-E, let me pray upon you. And it was, it was healthy and lethargic, uh, lethargic, cathartic for me to write the book as well. It was lethargic sometimes because I was (laughs) tired of writing, but in many ways, as difficult as it was to write, it helped me a, a lot. And I would encourage victims, you don't need to write a book, but to keep a diary or write your thoughts down. Um, getting that pain out in words, whether it's spoken or written, is huge to healing, I think. It's important to get it, to say it, to say those words. I was sexually abused. What he did to me was wrong, and he had no right to do it. Now, I keep saying he, but we all know that women can also abuse. I mean, I, I think, you know, that's to make that point as well. But most of them are men um, that are doing this abusive behavior. Right. Yeah, there are abusive women out there. So absolutely. Yes. Yes. But by you being able to write it, you get all your feelings out. You're not getting interrupted and you're taking your power back. Mm-hmm. That's exactly. I have my voice. I got my voice back. And I didn't have it for, I mean, like I said, for 27 years, I was silenced. And that wasn't a choice I made either. That was as a result of his abuse as well. It was the trauma that he created in my life that made me feel and believe that I had to keep this secret. And letting go of it was really, really difficult because I was so afraid and and scared to, to, to finally let that come out because I didn't know what would happen or where where this would take me once I spoke truth. It's taken me to a good place. It's been it's been a, a hard journey of healing. I um, you know, the triggers still happen. Church is still difficult for me, but I'm so much farther along than I was when I first started talking about my abuse. So much farther along. And I and I also tell victims, look, healing isn't an end. It's a process. It's a process. And you're going to take four steps forward and then you'll take two steps backwards. And there are days when you're going to feel like, wow, I think I'm over this. I'm, I feel good. And I'm not, you know, I'm really in a good place. And then you'll have a moment of a wave of depression or a wave of a, remem- a remembrance or a memory that takes you back. And that's just part of the healing process. But for me, those triggers have happened more infrequently. And when they do, um, I kind of let them move through me instead of trying to suppress them, which only heightens my anxiety. I, I I just let them move through. I remember it and I let it go. You know, it's still not easy, but it 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 is. It's so much better. And while my abuse will always be a part of my life, it doesn't have to define my life. And that's the difference. That's the difference. It's who I am. It it, it did happen, and it altered my life forever in many ways. But I now control that opposed to letting the abuse control me and, and allow him to control me. Right. Feel so much lighter. Yeah. <laughs> like oh, no question. Absolutely. It's, it's, it is releasing and letting go of all of that guilt, the shame, the questions, the doubt, and unraveling all those lies that our abusers tell us the, the, the and the way they've treated us to make us feel that we're not worthy to, to lower our self-esteem um, to question our ability, to question who we are. You know, when you're told you're not very smart all the time, guess what? That's Thank what you believe. Yeah. yeah. And and I did. I just, he always made me feel, he used to make me memorize a vocabulary word every week. And then I would 
have to tell him what the meaning was and use it in a sentence. Every week I'd have to do that. Did you have to spell it too, like a spelling bee? (laughs) I didn't make me spell it. No, he didn't make me spell it, but I sure. And if he didn't think it was a hard enough word, then he made me do two the following week. Um, And I did that because again, I'm under his control. I'm trying to please him. He's using it under the guise. He's trying to help me to be smarter, you know, that I'm going to have all this large vocabulary because of him. You know, it's just sick. It's it's a he's a to- toxic individual that, um, again, uh, preyed upon a vulnerable individual, and then learned to control me. I mean, he controlled every aspect of my life, and and I and I just like I said earlier, I thought, well, this is it. Whatever he says, I do. And if you read the book, you'll find out I did a lot of things that you think, wow, how did she? Why would she do that? Well. It was the only way I knew to survive because fighting him uh, only meant his anger. And so it was just easier to finally give in and do what he wanted and accept it. And that's how I survived. And had we had he not been caught, I don't know how long it would have gone on. I really don't because he was quite content with the way things were going. And he was getting away with it and fooling all the fooling the congregation. No one was the wiser. So life for him was good. It was good. Oh, yeah. I'm sure he probably had another one on the side too. You know, well, there were others at the time. Uh, he actually told me about some of them because I think it was his way of bragging. Um, he, I later then found out there were others. I don't think that I know of any that were as involved as he was with me. I mean, ours was purely sex and it was a, a lot of sex but there was nothing else. There was never any gifts given. There was never any kind of romance. It was strictly meet me at this hotel, meet me in my office. And it was sex. That's all it ever, ever was. And so he would tell me about other people he had in his office that said, oh, so-and-so let me kiss her. So-and-so let me you know, touch her and feel her. But I don't know that any of them went to the extent that he did with me. I don't know that for sure, but certainly that's abusive behavior too. I mean, you you know, just because he didn't go to the nth degree of having sex with any of them, that's an abuse of his position, obviously. Um, So yes, I was aware of several of them at the time. And then later on, I had some come to me and say, well, this is what happened with me, with him. So yeah, he was a predator. He was a predator. He was a wolf in sheep's clothing. He was pretending to be a shepherd. He was pretending to care for the flock. Instead, he was devouring the sheep. He was out for himself. Yes. Yeah. And that's a narcissistic behavior. And I encourage victims because so many of these men are narcissistic. And I think it's important to understand uh, what a narcissist looks like and how they behave. Um, Because he truly was a narcissist. Oh, yeah. No, you were. Tell me, I was like, oh, this is a narcissist. Yeah, sure. yeah. He, he, he met all the criteria of a narcissistic personality. But again, you don't see that at the time. And with the churches, again, they, they, they just loved him. They just thought he was wonderful. And, and so they were blinded by his charismatic personality. They were blinded by the fact that he was so dynamic in his job. He appeared to be doing wonderful things in the church. And that's the other thing uh, that I think churches fail and the leadership failing. They will then look to say, well, I know he made a mistake, but he's done so many wonderful things. Or look at all the great things he's done for the church that we shouldn't let this one mistake erase all of that. Well, this isn't about having a scale if he did 10 good things and one bad thing. First of all, the one bad thing outweighs any good he ever did. He has destroyed a soul. He's destroyed a soul within the church. And and so many victims, their spiritual life has been upended. You know, for me, he contaminated my spiritual life. He contaminated the church for me. You know, I I had sex inside of a church building. I I can't undo that. I can't erase that. And he took away trust. They take away our trust. And I think that's true with any abuse victim, whether it happens in the church or not. When someone you you trust so much and trust beyond belief, and then they misuse that trust, it affects you the rest of your life because you question, can I trust this person? You're always on guard because you know that someone you should have been able to trust used that against you. 
Yeah. And it's a shame because people can be so guarded and it sucks. But like at the same time, you just got to let yourself to get back out there. Not all people are bad and you can't let somebody take away your worth, take away your feelings, take away your beauty, your energy, anything. They're not worth it. No. And it's, you know, it's okay to see the, have the antenna up every now and then it's, you know, I, there's nothing wrong with being judgmental in a discerning way to, to pay attention, but you're right. The world's not all evil. And, but that takes time. That takes okay. time. Yeah. It takes time. And you, the other thing you do is you can find your circle of friends that you can trust. You know, you, you can, you can be leery of, of strangers. You can be leery of someone you just met. I know, you know, I find myself and I'm trying to to work on this, but I know that when I meet someone new, I am judging them right away. I find myself looking at them. I'm not as friend. I'm a very friendly person normally, but when I first meet someone, I'm a little, I don't reveal too much. I, I kind of, and I've had people say, you know, when I first met you, I thought you were kind of standoffish or, you know, I, I wasn't sure you were very... And I'm trying to work on that, but I know that's my defense mechanism to say, okay, I just met you. And before I let myself be a part of your world, I want to, you know, size you up a little bit. <laughs> I was going to say you're sizing them up. So are, are you sizing me up? <laughs> I am not. <laughs> I am not. And it doesn't, you know, most of the time it's a very quick kind of thing that I think, but I, you know, and I'm working on that because I, I don't want to, I, I don't want to give that impression that I'm, you know, a little snobbish or standoffish and um, cause that's not who I am, but right. that, that isn't an, an end result of abuse. You know, it's a life, it alters your life in a lot of ways that you don't even recognize. Right. You know, that's, um, and, and I think again, understanding what was done and how it was done and how it affected you is is the way that you can keep moving forward to examine to do self-examination and 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 to understand what your vulnerabilities were you know why why what vulnerability did that person see in you now some of it's just by the mere fact you know your age you're a child that's a vulnerability you know um perhaps you were going through a crisis in your life you know we talk about children but these men also abuse adult women as well they take advantage of someone who's going through a divorce who's lost a husband who's had a dysfunctional family or maybe they've been uh, abused prior so yeah there's it's adult women as well within these, especially within the churches. They will prey on again, they've come to the church for help, and this person has done just the opposite. Right. They've added to the wounds. They don't even care. <laughs> That's like the part that no, just... no, they don't. Um they don't. That's absolutely right. So if somebody wanted to buy your book, where can mm-hmm. they find it? It's available on Amazon. Um, I also have a website, which I would encourage people just to go to the website to look at it. it um, it's got a lot of good information on there. I have a lot of resources listed in the back of my book um, that I encourage people to read. And if even if, you're, if you've never even been to say, well, I don't have to go there because I've not been abused by a pastor. I still think it's important for people to understand the dynamics of clergy abuse and, and how it affects victims. So my book is available on my website, which is simply my name which is Sandy, S-A-N-D-Y, Phillips, P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, Kirkham, K-I-R-K-H-A-M.com. And, but again, if you go to Amazon, just put in, let me pray upon you, it'll pop up and you can get more information there as well. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a priest thing. Abuse is abuse. They all it's, use the same mold. Yes, they do. So it, it could be your coach. It could be yes. the guy who's doing uh, uh Boy Scout. Oh, yeah. 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 We talked about the gymnast. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it, it, I, I remember one woman who read my book and she said to me, Oh my gosh. She said, My husband, you described my ex husband. She said, I, wasn't abused by a, a clergy. She said, but he was exactly just like the person you were describing in your book. And she said, I was in bed reading your book and I, my husband was next to me and I, I hit him on his arm and I said, you've got to read this chapter because she is describing my ex-husband to a T. So you're right. It is, it, it's a, it, 
the, the grooming, gaslighting, manipulation, love bombing, all of those things are tools that any predator or any sexual abuser will use. They're just, and even in a marriage, you know, that's an abusive marriage. This is, this is what they do. They gaslight you into thinking you're crazy. They gaslight you into believing that you're not worthy, that no one's going to believe you. They, they, all of that. I mean, to me, the gaslighting is the most damaging. It was for me, at least. Um, He, you know, he told me we were married in God's eyes. He said that, you know, it was God's will that we were together. He used scripture. He talked about how he was David in the Bible and that David had sinned, but God still used him. I mean, that gaslighting and constantly telling me I'm not worthy is when you start to believe that reality that your abuser creates. That's what it's about. Yeah. So that's so a lot of that information is in my book and it's on my website as well. Yes, it's so important to know the signs, to see it, recognize it, get the hell out. <laughs> yeah, or and to help someone else. You know, you may see it as, as someone else who's in this same situation. And it's a way of, of, of helping to open up and educate them to say, you know, think about this, because what he's saying and doing looks like it's grooming or gaslighting. Usually by the time they're married and abusive, the grooming is long gone. Um, the, the kindness and trying to help and pretending like they care about you is over. Right. So now it's just, you're worthless. You're this. Yes. You're yes. Yes. And they're under, you're under their control. Right. Yeah. And, you know, people say, well, you know, why don't you get out? Well, again, you have to understand just because you, there is a way out doesn't mean you see that way out. I, I just, someone described it to me as like being in a maze. There's a way out, sure, but you're bouncing into walls and you've got this this person telling you, no, you can't go and you can't do this and you can't do that. There's a maze. You can't get out. It's not that easy just to say, I'm out of here. It, right. You know, it's, it's not. Even if you try and you're searching after a while, you might find a bench and you're like, you know what? I'm just going to park it. We're good for right now because yeah. I have nowhere else to go. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's so I hopefully with education, people start to understand these things about victims, because once we start to understand how it affects victims, then we're more willing to say, wait a minute, this is horrific, what these men and sometimes women have done to these people. Yeah. Why do this? (laughs) Good for you. Yeah, that's great. I mean, that, and we need more voices like this. We really do. Um, Fortunately, victims are beginning to speak out and we are talking about this topic in a way that we didn't, you know, when it happened to me 30 something years ago, um, we didn't have this openness to be able to talk. And, you know, hopefully someone will hear my story or hear one of your podcasts and say, I listened to a couple of your podcasts and, you know, I thought this is a real gift that you are giving to uh, people who are in a dark place. Thank you. Well, it's true. No, it's true. I, 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 you know, um, I can't think of the podcast at the moment. I think it was, last name was Die, D-Y-E. Oh, Um, Clinton. Yes. You know, his story was so horrific and yet I could relate to it in some ways, but I know there's someone out there that heard his story that was like, it affected them and, and perhaps gave them some kind of insight to their own story and life. And that's a gift. That's a gift that no one else can give but you and other victims. I appreciate so much what you do. I think it's great that you're, and you were a great host. So thank you. Thank you. Well, you're very welcome. It's my honor. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. (laughs) Is there anything else you wanted to share? Uh, No, I think we, you know, I think we've covered. I just, I would like just to say to victims again, do not blame yourself and there is hope and there's healing. Absolutely. And it's never done. There's no time limit on no. how long it needs to take you no. or, and there's no finish line. Stop thinking that you're going to get to this pole and you're going to win your trophy. Your right. trophy is just raising higher above and becoming a better person. Exactly. I still would like a trophy though. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't we all? <laughs> all right. Well, thank you so much, Sandy. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Make sure you look out for her book. If you know somebody who could benefit from this episode, please share it with them. Do you want to be on the show? Do you have a story to tell? Or do you just have a topic that you want to talk about? 
that's related to the show, <laughs> of course, make sure you go over to crimeovercocktails.com. Right there, you can send me a message. You can also use the links to go to any of my social media accounts. And I don't know if you've ever noticed, but the links are always at the bottom of my episodes. So if there's ever a certain something that you're looking for, and this is even including my guests information, it's always at the bottom. Thank you guys so much for listening and we'll talk crime another time. Bye.